Do you agree with me that the people of ancient Israel were master storytellers? What has been developing since chapter 37 of Genesis reaches its climax here at the beginning of our lesson in chapter 45. The tension has been building as the story of a number of years has unfolded. It's been a story of jealousy, grief, loss, power, and it would be logical that it would unfold ultimately as a story of revenge, that Joseph would finally turn the tables on his brothers and pay them back for their earlier deeds. Maybe he would send them back to die in the famine, maybe use his power to have them imprisoned or even enslaved. But in what we recognize as a parabolic moment, Joseph does something that is completely unexpected. In chapter 45, the heart of this final lesson, Joseph turns the story on its head and he offers at least three things. He offers truth, a profound lesson in the providence of God, and healing. The first truth is the most basic and the most immediately powerful. I am Joseph. It's a fairly standard statement of self-disclosure, but it echoes dramatically after all the tension that has been building. Just one verse later, Joseph adds another element of truth. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Yes, he is their brother, and now he is telling them who they are as well, the ones whose hatred separated him from his family and all that was familiar to him. The ancients knew the wisdom of naming what has caused pain. The prophets, for example, made careers out of speaking on God's behalf, calling the people to repentance, but only after they had named the sins that caused Israel's pain in the first place, sins such as idolatry and neglect of the poor. In the case of Joseph and his brothers, the sin that hangs in the air between them is the sin of envy and dishonesty, a lack of love. Even Joseph's brief reminder of that reality is enough to move them all forward toward healing. Now, once the true identity of the family has been revealed, the story offers another surprising term. There is a kind of immediacy in the way that Joseph acts. He doesn't let that sinful nature of past behaviors hang in the air for long. He doesn't allow time for shame to fill the room. Instead, he immediately offers an interpretation of events that focuses all of them beyond themselves toward the God who will always be known to Israel as their deliverer. He says, do not be angry with yourselves for having sold me here. It was really for the sake of saving lives that God sent me here ahead of you. God sent me on ahead of you to ensure for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives in an extraordinary deliverance. There's so much there to consider. But let's begin with the insight and conviction that Joseph's words capture for Israel and for us that God has been at work all along. It's a conviction that is repeated in chapter 50 of Genesis after the elderly Jacob dies and the brothers fearfully offer to become Joseph's slaves, perhaps believing that their father's presence had protected them when Joseph first revealed himself. And again, Joseph assures them, do not fear. Even though you meant harm to me, God meant it for good to achieve this present end, the survival of many people. That doesn't mean that God somehow planned all this or predestined the way the events would unfold. No. This is a prime example of how God is at work right in the midst of the human condition. In Walter Brueggemann's commentary, he says it beautifully. Neither the freedom of the creature nor the gracious sovereignty of God is canceled. They are not in conflict, nor are they to be equated. God's will makes use of all human action but is domesticated or limited by no human choice. 
we find ourselves in a both-and situation. This has been both a story of human depravity and sinfulness and a story of providence and deliverance. In some ways, this captures what is unique about how Israel's God functioned on their behalf. There's no sidestepping the human condition. God doesn't make humans act in particular ways, nor does God act despite how we act. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, God acts within human history, within human decisions, within the freedom that is part of our created nature. God's purpose will find their way within the family of Jacob and his sons, and God's purposes continue to find their way within our families. God is simply tenacious and must have great patience as well. These words from one of Israel's prophets, Isaiah, affirm this as well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, oracle of the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In some of the Bible stories, God acts in large ways. Intervening later to free Israel from slavery is one of those epic interventions. But in this story of Joseph's misfortunes and his rise to power, and particularly in his conviction that God has worked for good on their behalf, God has been working behind the scenes, surely preparing hearts and minds for a new beginning. And that beginning requires Joseph to act with the healing graciousness that only God could surpass. Joseph's resolve to care for his family and to bring healing to their situation is punctuated by a sense of urgency. In verse 9 of chapter 45, he says, hurry back then. And then in verse 13, hurry and bring my father down here. I wonder how many of us have had that an experience of forgiveness or reconciliation that makes us want to seize that moment of healing and move forward. On a purely emotional level, I could connect with what could have been happening as Joseph's identity sinks in. And on a theological level, Joseph acts as a provider, much the way that God acts as a provider throughout Israel's history. Remember, these stories first evolved around the campfires of God's people at a much later time. They looked back through the lens of their experiences as a people. They recognized God's provision throughout their history, and then they used that thread of experience with God as they told and retold their ancient stories. And so Joseph acts as a provider, and the provisions he makes to reunite his family and get them through a time of famine becomes that avenue for healing. Chapter 46 begins with the only direct encounter with the divine in this section of Genesis. And this small piece will actually form a kind of bridge between the ancestral stories of Genesis and those of Exodus. Israel has set out. Now that would be the family of, jo of Jacob has set out, stopping to offer sacrifice where Isaac had earlier worshipped God. And Jacob receives this vision. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. So the promise of Genesis 12, that they will become a great nation, is still intact. And it continues, I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will also bring you back here, after Joseph has closed your eyes. So Jacob will return for burial, but this is also an allusion to later descendants who will occupy the land of Canaan. The remainder of Genesis takes pains to tell us how the entire clan of Jacob settles in the land. 
The storytellers of Genesis use details genealogies to show the breadth of generosity. They use tales from Pharaoh's court and details about land policy to show how closely that family has become aligned with royal power and how it grows in strength. And they use Jacob's illness and final blessing to testify to the later tribal configurations that emerged in Israel's history. When we began the study of Genesis, I talked about how the stories we would study and pray are a way of putting us in touch with God, putting us in touch with grace. Well, as we end, I'd like to consider how the closing testament of Jacob describes some of these graceful encounters, especially by focusing on the ways that God is characterized in the description that accompanies the blessing of Joseph. Chapter 49, verses 24 and 25 are at the heart of Jacob's blessing for Joseph. And there we find God referred to as the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the God of your father, and God Almighty. What is meant to call God the mighty one of Jacob? When the elderly Jacob met Pharaoh, he described the years of his life as few and hard. Some of the hardness of his life was definitely of his own making, stealing a birthright and inheritance, offending his only brother, and favoring Joseph over his other children. But life circumstances also brought hardship. In his case, he found a woman he loved and then was tricked into marrying her sister first and into providing backbreaking labor for his father-in-law. His children disappointed him with brutal and immoral behavior. His daughter was the victim of a violent rape, and his favorite son was ripped from his sight and presumed dead. Early in his life, Jacob literally felt God's might in his nighttime struggle as he camped and waited to reconcile with Esau. Jacob walked away from that divine encounter with a limp and a new identity. Sometimes I think we want to focus so much on how God comforts and forgives that we forget the strength of that divine embrace. Which reminds me, I saw a bumper sticker recently that said something like this, rely on Jesus to pull you through if you can survive the pull. Our faith is not something that saves us from trials or guarantees fewer than average bumps in the road. Our faith and the faith of Jacob is the assurance that God is there within all of it, highs and lows, and that we can rely on the strength of God when we are weak. Jacob's God is the mighty one who accompanied him in the waning years of his life on a difficult journey to Egypt. I can imagine an old and limping man, skin dark and weathered by the Middle Eastern sun and climate, leaving behind the familiar once again to travel to what he hoped would be a more secure place. Migrants the world over, willing to make very difficult journeys for the sake of their families, often discover that God is the power in their weakness. Think about the initial meeting between Jacob and Pharaoh. This was a self-described wayfarer with absolutely no land, encountering a man whose land extended for miles upon miles. Now, who has the power or the might in this situation? It would seem that Pharaoh has the power because of his land and because of his political position. But in reality, Jacob has the promise of land and a promise keeper whose power is greater than political power. A second characterization for God used in this final lesson is the shepherd. Now, there are many biblical references that come to mind. The 23rd Psalm praises God as shepherd. Many prophetic passages compare the inept shepherding of foreign kings and even Israel's leaders with the shepherding that God provides. And of course, the New Testament depicts Jesus as the good shepherd. 
Now, in the arid lands of the Middle East, a shepherd must find those rare and isolated sources of water in the rocky and barren landscape. Just as a shepherd leads the flock to hidden streams or overflow areas after rains, God directed Jacob's family to Egypt, even settling them in the northeast section of the Nile Delta, later known as Goshen. Rain rarely fell in Egypt, and when it did, it was only in the Delta area. The level of the Nile really depended on the rainy season in Ethiopia, which would carry into Egypt the fertile soil needed for crops. Through Joseph, and even through a foreign king, the Pharaoh of Egypt, God the shepherd led Israel to water. But another task for a shepherd is to protect the sheep from the dangers of harsh weather, predatory animals, and even other dishonest shepherds. Our study of Genesis has been filled with illustrations of God's skill in protecting the descendants of Abraham when in danger, though this is never guaranteed. Joseph, in these final chapters, is protected from the harm that could have been his when sold into slavery. And he made wise decisions that put him in the good graces of his masters, and as a result, he came to master the properties of Egypt. Another important task for a shepherd is to round up the sheep and keep them from straying again. And God had plenty in that department to stay busy. Sarah ejected Hagar and Ishmael in a fit of jealousy. Jacob and Rebekah plotted to trick Isaac and Esau. And Judah tried to trick Tamar out of her lawful right for a husband and children. And these are just a few of the examples. Now, a third characterization for God that was found in this lesson is the rock of Israel. Are you aware that rock is the most popular image for God found in the Psalms? It's true. And if you've ever had the opportunity to travel in the Holy Land, you can probably see why. Rock is the most important and the most abundant resource in this small sliver of land. It's the one constant in the landscape of the Middle East. It's the solid substance that can be used for homes, for protective walls, for altars and monuments, and for roads. So rock is constant and it's solid. And throughout its own story of ancestors and primeval history, God has been Israel's constant, Israel's rock of safety and shelter, a home when they wandered with only a promise of land. Fourth, God is characterized as the God of your father. Knowing one's ancestry in ancient cultures was more than an interesting search to complete the list of names for a family tree. To claim one's ancestry was to claim loyalty to the values and traditions that have permeated one's family. Each person along the way is an important witness to the continued unfolding of religious and cultural identity. That's why it's significant that Jacob had Joseph swear an oath to bury him with his ancestors. It was a way of saying he knew who he was, and it was a way of reminding his son Joseph that he shared that identity and should be buried there too. The point of these death and burial passages is not to dwell on endings, but to focus on connections that span time and history. The, the deaths of Jacob and Joseph place them within God's presence in a way that claims their full identity. The final characterization of God that is mentioned in this last lesson is contained in the title, God Almighty. When we began our study of Genesis, the author immediately took us back to the beginnings when the earth was without form or shape and introduced you and me to the awesome creator of the universe. The rest of the book of Genesis focused our attention on one part of that vast creation and then one family in that creation, the family of Abraham. 
God, the Almighty, was working a wonder, not just in creating the elements of nature, but in calling forth a people and choosing to work through them in the midst of their very humanness. What makes God Almighty is not just the power to create something out of nothing, but the ability to trust fragile human beings with that which has been created. In Genesis, human beings are entrusted with the earth and all that is in it, entrusted with the promise of abundant life and land, and most importantly, entrusted to live in a way that is true to their experience of God. These five characterizations of God found tucked away in Jacob's Testament about the tribes of Israel helped me to see that Genesis has been all about communicating Israel's experience of God's sustaining presence. Now, what has that to do with us? I'd say everything. We are descendants of Israel, still caught in the very human struggles that filled the stories of Israel's patriarchs and matriarchs. We search for an experience of God and are constantly looking for guides that can help us to do that. How else could we explain the abundance of books sold every day that are reportedly about spirituality or religion? People want to find meaning in life. They're looking for models of those who have done just that. In the period of Israel's monarchy, when parts of Genesis were recorded, Israel also wanted to find models, and they looked to their own history to do that. They dusted off the stories of their ancestors, heard and told them in fresh ways, and accumulated them in what is now the first book of our Bibles. The book of Genesis begins with a couple in an idyllic garden, and it ends by telling us about one family who migrated to a foreign land. Paradise has been abandoned in favor of the real world where people live and die. What remains from paradise is the God who created it all, the God who promised Noah to never again destroy the earth with a flood, the God who promised Abraham and Sarah an abundance of descendants in the land of Canaan. What remains is the promise of land and the people who choose to believe and live that promise. These final chapters form a bridge between the stories of the patriarchs and the monumental event of Exodus. The descendants of Abraham find themselves in Egypt, living on fertile land, not knowing that in a few generations the fate of their families will again be altered dramatically. Their status as oppressed slaves is only hinted at in the final chapter that gives an account of Joseph's land reforms. But their immediate needs are being met, and they have God's promise to sustain them. I hope that studying the book of Genesis has helped you to see yourself as part of that tribe of descendants of Abraham. You and I are children of that same promise. I pray that within our own life situations, we will become more alert to the ways that God's promises are sustaining us, to the ways that God's promises are being fulfilled in us. 